battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we are talking to Bianca Cunningham of Tennessee for All about their work uh, up north of the border. We're also going to be talking about the Council of Bosses, otherwise known as the Business Council of Alabama, their campaign against Alabama's auto workers. And we will be talking about uh, child labor today in Boss Watch. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week and we might uh, respond to it on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, all at The Valley Labor Report. We also have a website, tvlr.fm, where you can subscribe to our newsletters. Um, Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to be part of making this program happen, you can make a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also buy our merch at tvlr.fm slash store or become a patron at at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you're a member of a union, then think about getting your local or international to sponsor the show. We could not do it without the support of organized labor. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. And as most of you know, we are not media professionals, just a few diehard union brothers who believe that Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in. Whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener, we appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Last week in Southern Labor, let's get to it. Uh, Here's what workers in the U.S. South and the American colonies were up to from February 2nd to the 9th. Uh, we had several new campaigns, 160 workers at La Arbarge uh, Casino Hotel Baton Rouge in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, filed a petition to hold a union election with the United Auto Workers, UAW. The UAW also represents 
thousands of casino workers in Detroit, so expanding on a base that they already have. The employer filed a petition to hold a union election after a majority of the 47 workers at the Texas Tribune in Austin, Texas, demonstrated support for unionization with the Media Guild of the West, CWA, local 39-13. Nine workers at Como Electric Cooperative in Tipton, Missouri, filed a petition to hold a union election with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW, Local 2. It looks like the Security Police and Fire Professionals of America, SPFPA, is raiding a unit of 110 security guards at Loomis Armored U.S. in Atlanta, Georgia. Currently represented by the United Government Security Officers of America, UGSA, UGSOA, Local 382. 98 workers at UNFI United Natural Foods in Atlanta, Georgia, filed a petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters, Local 728. Four workers at Barbizon Capital in Alexandria, Virginia, filed a petition to hold a union election with the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, IATSE, Local 22. 12 workers at Hairspray on Tour in Fort Myers, Florida, filed a petition to hold a union election with IATSE. The employer is being represented by Littler Middle Mendelssohn. Boo, boo. Seven workers at Lidos in Merritt Island, Florida, filed a petition to hold a union election with IATSE Local 780. In campaign updates, the UAW hit 50% card signed at Volkswagen in Chattanooga. That means that Sean Fain should be making a trip down here very soon. Tech workers at Grinder held a union election with the Communication Workers of America where the challenged ballots were determinative. So no official result is out yet, but last week the NLRB determined that some of the challenged ballots should be opened and those only widened the lead that the pro-union workers held. There are still more challenged ballots left, so the workers are stuck waiting on the NLRB for a while longer, but the CWA predicts that if they are opened, they will only increase the lead. In election results, the one worker at Transdev Services in Mobile, Alabama, who filed a petition to hold a union election uh, to join a previously existing bargaining unit with the Amalgamated Transit Union, uh, has withdrawn that petition, so maybe they worked out a voluntary recognition deal with management. 50 security guards at Allied Universal in Tampa, Florida, withdrew their petition to hold a union election with SPFPA, as did two workers at United Rentals in O'Fallon, Missouri. Uh, they withdrew their petition to hold a union election with the Teamsters, Local 600. 17 workers at New Era in Clarksville, Tennessee, withdrew their petition to hold a union election with the United Steelworkers, USW. 29 workers at Giant Resource Recovery in Harleyville, South Carolina, voted 4-23 to 23 against unionization with the USW. 14 workers for the Hertz Corporation in El Paso, Texas, voted 5-7 to seven against unionization with the Teamsters Local 745. Five workers at the Peace Center Foundation in Greenville, South Carolina, voted 5-0 to zero in favor of unionization with IATSE Local 322. There was an Alabama union side law firm providing legal representation. 25 workers at Duke Riley Hospital in Riley, North Carolina, 
they voted uh, 14 to 11 in favor of unionization with the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE, Local 465. 18 workers at Neil R. Gross and Company in Washington, D.C. voted 16 to 1 in favor of unionization with Court Reporters United. 31 workers at Sherwin-Williams in Lawrenceville, Georgia voted 15 to 16 in favor of decertifying the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, IUPAT, Local 1961. In uh, settlements, grievances, and unfair labor practices, you'll recall that Trader Joe's United, which has organized four locations, including one in Kentucky, has been sued by Trader Joe's for copyright infringement. Last month, a federal judge threw the case out, saying that the lawyer should almost be sanctioned for his frivolous legal arguments in the case. Last week, Trader Joe's appealed the ruling. In strikes and bargaining, after the Durham, North Carolina educators went on a sick out last week, the Board of Education approved all of the union's emergency demands. Duke University in North Carolina raised their minimum wage to $18 an hour a few months after UE Local 150 secured an $18.50 an hour minimum wage for city workers. Paratransit drivers providing a uh, on-demand service in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, ratified their first union contract with the Amalgamated Transit Union with a 17.25% raise over five years, a grievance procedure, seniority protections, and more. Love to see ATU making that kind of gain in the South. Good Absolutely. job. Absolutely. The Teamsters are heading towards multiple strikes in the beer industry. Both Molson Coors and Anheuser-Busch are refusing to meet the Teamsters on key issues. The Teamsters raised the strike pay to $1,000 a week for these two groups of workers in the event that they do go on strike. In politics and legislation, a farm worker died from the heat in Miami last summer, so we've seen efforts to pass municipal help heat protections in uh, Florida cities. The Florida Senate is trying to preempt those ordinances, saying, quote, it's unconscionable that all of a sudden we need babysitters for everyone that works. I think it's unconscionable that employers in Florida are allowed to subject their workers to conditions that lead to their death. Former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman spearheaded an effort to buy over $4 million in medical debt and forgive it, positively impacting over 5,000 Alabamians. With Florida's new anti-union law in place, 30 public sector units for city, university, and non-instructional school employees were decertified by the state. This means that their contracts, even though they haven't expired, are now null and void, and workers are not guaranteed those protections or benefits. The law automatically decertifies unions when they fall under 60%, with an opportunity for a recertification election if 30% petition for it, in which case a 50% plus one vote would recertify the union, but they would be at risk of decertification again if they did not get membership up to 60%. McKenna Schuler has great reporting on this in the Orlando Weekly. The AFL-CIO last week officially called for a ceasefire in Gaza. This comes after months of rank-and-file organizing against silence on the conflict and now places Union Joe in direct conflict with the, with the position of U.S. labor on the issue. 
not the South, but certainly has implications for the South, as the NLRB held that basketball players at Dartmouth College are employees and scheduled a union election for March the 5th. In internal union affairs, Amazon workers at Kentucky's KCVG Air Hub uh, voted to ratify their new local constitution in preparation for a eventual union election. If we missed anything, let us know, tvlr.fm slash contact, and we will try to include it on next week's Roundup. We're going to be right back talking to Bianca Cunningham from Tennessee for All. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit coveralabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. 
With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Sinyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Sinyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Sinyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Sinyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Sinyard Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. creates all wealth all wealth should go to labor and you are listening to the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison adam keller is my co-host uh we have on the line with us now bianca cunningham from tennessee for all a nonprofit uh coalition that advocates for uh poor and working tennesseans uh bianca welcome to the program appreciate you taking the time Absolutely. Glad to have you. Uh, so start off talking to us about uh, your work coming to um, Tennessee for All and, and, and what the organization does. Yeah, sure. So actually, I work for an organization called Bargaining for the Common Good. And what they do is basically fund labor, community, faith coalitions um, around the country. And so when they were looking to make an investment in the South, Tennessee kind of reached out to us and let them know that they were ready to use that type of framework for their own fights in the state. Mm. And so 2021, uh, we set up you know, uh, it was labor unions, it was community organizations that work on pol everything from policing um, to environment, et cetera, um, as well as some faith organizations reached out and said that they wanted to create a coalition that can really transform the political landscape of their state. And what they're looking uh, at is about 26,000 jobs being added to Tennessee because of the electrical vehicle investment that's happening right now around the state. And so they're wow. thinking about how can they soften the ground for labor in a way that we know that unions haven't done that great um, in the past as far as the community uh, engagement. Right, right. And you've been doing, you know, labor and labor adjacent work for, for a while now. Actually, uh, we met, I, I don't know if Adam told you this, but we met when you were uh, uh, doing an organizer training in Birmingham um, back in like 2018 or 2019. So it's been a while. A lot's changed since then. <laughs> a lot has changed. So uh, what brought you to this, to this kind of work? 
Yeah. So actually that training that you were talking about, you know, uh, that was whenever I was at labor notes. And so, you know, I have been trained by some of the best um, in rank and file education. Um, but I think before that, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, I was a retail worker in Brooklyn, New York, mm. and I started my own union with my coworkers. And I realized a couple of things through that process. Number one, um, you know, a lot of people that we interface with in the union had never actually put it out on the line for their own job before, meaning they probably got hired into a union position. So I think that, you know, having that experience of organizing, you know, with CWA, which was a great experience, um, but, you know, having to go through a year and a half of bargaining, we struck for 49 days for our very first contract. Right. Um, I think it, a lot of stories in there illuminated reasons why, um, you know, it's important that there's representation from community in unions because unions mm. can be pretty siloed. And I just remember, like, shout out to Bob Master, who was the political director back then. I remember him grumbling in the corner saying that what they don't understand is that we're past the time where you could just win a strike. You can't win a strike mm. without community support. And that always really stayed with me um, because it's something that I didn't really see in my community um, talked about that often. We knew a lot of people had blue collar jobs. We knew what a good city job or a good union job was, but we, mm. we didn't have a lot of people advocating for good labor jobs. So when I got the opportunity to go to bargaining for the common good, it seemed so uh, up my alley with talking about racism in the labor movement, talking about how we can center anti-racist themes in the labor movement and how we can really bring in community in a way that they don't feel like they're being uh, talked down to because the union is more powerful, it has more money, but how can we create like a real equal partnership um, mm. where we're moving the work together? No, I, I think that, that I think that's great. And so the and yeah, um, also, I just want to say the the potential when we have community faith labor coalitions is so huge. Like there's so much untapped potential there, particularly here in the South, uh, because, mm. you know, you're right. These groups often haven't been talking with each other, haven't been building networks of solidarity amongst each other. And like the more we show up for each other and the more we support our efforts, you know, it, it's I think the the sky is the future uh, or, you know, it really is, is um, so much potential in terms of diversifying our movement, strengthening our, our movement, hitting it from different directions. Right. And bringing in different people's talents and skills and relationships that they have. It's just uh, it's very important work what you're doing. And, and we're you know definitely trying to do some of that work here in Alabama as well. Uh, and it's exciting to see that happening in Tennessee and right here in the south. How did that work get started in Tennessee? What was the, what was the impetus in in Tennessee in the labor movement to say that that yeah we we want to try to do more to involve the community? You know, well, for lack of you know better circumstances, they're already really operating, and y'all probably know this from Alabama. They're already operating as an ecosystem because they're severely underfunded. Mm. Um, you know, unions don't have a ton of power or capacity. So like, I think my introduction to the South was like, you know, coming from New York where unions have like full staff, you know, you have comms, you have like a, you know, a whole right. team behind you. And then coming to the South and being like, I only have one or maybe nobody off of, you know, even mm. on work release, right? right. Um, so they've already been operating as an ecosystem system. I think what they wanted to do from using the bargaining for the common good framework was two things. Number one, figure out a way to um, talk about and amplify the corporate power that's building that we know that Republicans in our state, you know, are championing all the time and taking care of their friends. So how, how can we 
draw attention to the corporations. We know 60% of corporations aren't paying taxes in the state of Tennessee, for instance, right? So it's mm. like, how can we start to go after different targets than just the uh, government, especially when there's a Republican trifecta and it feels really hard, right? And I think the second thing was like, how can we bring direct action? We know that Tennessee uh, has a long history and legacy of, you know, the home of the civil rights movement and so many other important struggles. It's like, how can we start to bring that spirit of direct action and confrontation back as we're, uh, you know, to, like looking at the wealthiest individuals in the state and who's taking advantage of us? And so I feel like the labor councils and, you know, it was like it's United Campus Workers, the labor councils, mm -hmm. SEIUs all came together and put their egos aside along with, you know, like I said, uh, Memphis for All. They do community policing and safety, um, you know, Stand Up Nashville, which a lot of people know about um, and in the Gamaliel organizations. Um, the other thing I would say that they were really interested in was like we didn't, and this is something I learned, they didn't have any statewide infrastructure in any organization in the state, meaning no hmm. state, excuse me, no organization had a statewide reach or a statewide program or anything like that. Everybody was operating mostly in, you know, the rural, uh, excuse me, the urban centers or, you know, like the metro, hmm. the city centers, which is like Nashville, Memphis, um, and even Chattanooga and Knoxville a little bit. And so we were saying, we were saying, well, if you look at the map, 91 of 96 <laughs> of the counties in this state are rural. So right. if we're only organizing in Nashville, we got a problem because we're never right. going to be able to reach the people that we need. And so that was another impetus for us coming down there, mm. doing rural organizing around the electrical vehicle battery plants. We've done direct action. When I first got there, they told me that they hadn't even, I was like talking, you know, I'm coming from New York where we had like a robust movement. I was, you know, a member of the DSA. We're getting people elected, you know, we're moving mm -hmm. things right. and I go and, and it's because of thousands and thousands of volunteers and going yeah. down there, them telling me in 2021, like we haven't even had unpaid canvassers since 2005. And mm. I was like, well, so they're like, nobody's going to get in the street. Like, we're too polite. Like, we're not doing that. And, you know, fast forward to like a lot of working, a lot of honest conversations, a lot of agitation. And we were able to put 300 people in the Amazon office in Nashville last year. So I That's just feel awesome. like it was a yeah, it was a desire to want to break from what they had been doing and try something, you know, different. You know, the um the 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 community stuff has has really been beneficial as i understand it for uh for workers particularly in national and i'm interested in some of the stuff that you're doing in rural communities as well but um we have we have vonda in the youtube chat president of the national labor <laughs> council she's a big fan of yours uh she says that, that you're an organizing phenomenon and we had ann barnett from the nashville labor council come talk to our labor council in north alabama about some of the work that they've been doing. And they talked about how Stand Up Nashville was able to get a community benefits agreement with uh, one with a, a new stadium that was being built. Yeah, to a, a, to base to build it, you know, uh, not explicitly with union labor. You know, and that's not written in there, but, you know, with union wages, with safety, union safety standards, with union training standards. And so, you know, who are the only people left that can that that are willing to do that? Right. Of course, the non-union contractors could up their game and they could, you know, meet all these standards and, and, and be, you know, kind of taking the high road. But they don't want to do that. And we know that. And so the people that are left are the union contractors. And so that how were you involved in that campaign? 
actually they know I was not involved in that campaign. I came in in the tail end of that. And I know that there, I mean, one, one thing we talk, need to talk about when we talk about community benefits agreement is enforcement, right? How mm. do you actually enforce the agreement afterwards? But that's, that's another conversation. I wouldn't want to shout out too, that they were able to get like uh, dedicated affordable housing for the area, which is mm. if anybody knows Nashville, it's so expensive. People can't afford to live there. It's a service, you know, the service industry is huge, right? It's a tourist city. And so um, that was really special. One of the things I'm working on right now, though, is trying to replicate what they did around an elect the Ford Blue Oval in Mason, Tennessee. It's about hour, mm -hmm. hour and a half outside of Memphis. And so this is uh, generations of black. It's a black farming town. Um, and they're basically getting ran, you know, like ran over through eminent yes. domain. No input from, you know, Ford is talking about generational wealth and coming into the landowners and offering them $3,500 an acre. I mean, wow. this is what we're dealing with. There's no infrastructure there. And so when you talk about adding 6,000 jobs to a very rural, underdeveloped mm -hmm. area like that, we know that it's going to change, you know, the makeup of what right. they've been calling home forever. Um, they have very clean. They have a very great aquifer, very clean water, very mm. fertile soil for farming. Um, and so we're trying to say if Ford is going to come in and make this six billion dollar investment in Blue Oval City, then they ought to have enough money, especially from taxpayer money, by the way, because they got three right. million. <laughs> OK, three right. billion, excuse me, from the state. And I believe like nine billion total from the federal government. Wow. So we're saying like, where's the investment into really? the community around here? And people want a Wakanda. We want all there the electrical go. vehicle cool things that we're th thinking about. We want green space. We want green infrastructure. We want the people to, you know, have a return on the investment of their tax dollars mm -hmm. that Ford has been able to use to build this. Can you say that again? You said it was three billion dollars from the state of Tennessee for this one factory 2.9 billion dollars yeah that's insane we have done in Alabama Adam it's only been like what 1.5 billion over 30 years to how half a dozen different auto manufacturers right, right. yeah that's remarkable that's wild that is insane and then on, and that's on top of 9 billion from the federal government you said that's right and oh, a dollar lease for the land yep Oh so my goodness. what we're saying is the federal government or Biden administration supposedly gave that money and said, you know, you got to take care of the community because this is not that popular. Um, but we right. know that Ford's version of community benefits agreement has been a 50,000 check to the Boys and Girls Club or, you know, taking care of certain organizations. Wow. And what we're saying is we want long term investment that really addresses the impact that people are already feeling from this facility. Yeah, of course. And so how far along is the facility? And this is a really you know, this is a this could potentially be a very kind of touchy subject for for labor you know we're talking about a new ford plant almost certainly you know the 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 uaw has card check provisions with with ford i believe and so almost certainly this is going to be a union plant six thousand union jobs here soon and so we it, it you you could see a world where labor is lining up behind Ford and supporting the kind of running over of, of this small black town uh, on the uh, uh, on the west end of Tennessee. Um, 
And so how far along is the construction? Is it actually done being built? Because I remember years ago, actually, I, I don't know if you're familiar with America's Workforce, but it's this union radio program in Ohio. I remember years ago, the iron workers going on America's Workforce in Ohio, talking about we need iron workers to come down and work this plant uh, to, build, to build this thing. So how far is it along? What have y'all been doing to, um, to try to make – Ford do more than give fifty thousand dollars to the Boys and Girls Club, and uh, and 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 what's the status of of all of that, and and where is labor right now? That's a lot at you, so I'm sure, uh, <laughs> that, you're is, capable. that is a lot. I might it. have to tag in Miss Vonda on this one now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the plant is set to open in 2025, and it's true that like um, it's not completely built, although it is going up fast. Um, mm. They're still like waiting on some permits and some different things. They're building their own water treatment facility to treat their own water. I think environmental concerns come around the top uh, line of the concerns right now because we know that those batteries are so toxic. We haven't really heard a real plan. Um, to how they're going to dispose of them. When I they uh, I was as part of this thing called the Blue Oval Roundtable, where Ford um, invites all of these local organizations to you know give input, and they flew us all out to their headquarters in Detroit. And you know one of the things I asked is what's the what's the plan for the battery disposal? And they told me that they hope that there is like a really strong secondary market where they'll never have to dispose of a battery. They can just keep selling you it over and over in different cars, um, which was concerning. So, so yeah, but we have some time. We have some time. As far as labor, it is being built union right now. Um, we are working uh, closely, like with Layuna, for instance. And I know that Layuna is working really hard to get people in the local community hired to help build it. Mm -hmm. um, so labor is there right now. Um, as far as the UAW, you know. I just want to address two things. Number one, yeah, it is true that they have neutrality, but we also know, because we saw this with Volkswagen, that the company doesn't have to do an anti-union campaign. Mm. The state will do it for them. Yeah, so right. there's no, you know, there's no guarantees ever, right? Um, but UAW has been really great. Um, so when we start, so something happened. So when we started uh, doing Tennessee for All, originally we were working on education, uh, fully funding education, and we were doing stuff around, uh, they had a right to work bill that was trying to be codified in the state uh, constitution that we were fighting against, us and the NAACP. Mm -hmm. Tennessee for All, because the state fed wouldn't fight it, right? So we mm -hmm. stepped up and said, we think it's that important. Of course, we got our asses kicked, but in that fight, people started to, you know, take notice of us. And so the folks in Mason were some of those folks that took notice and invited us out. And we were able to bring, you know, a bunch of people out um, to Mason, Tennessee, which is in the footprint of the Blue Oval facility. And what was happening with them was that as soon as Ford announced that they were coming, um, the state of Tennessee tried to revoke this Mason's charter small black world town to to absorb it into the surrounding uh white wow. county because they wanted to you know steamroll yeah. through this community um and without any input so they revoked their charter or they tried to revoke the charter saying that they owed all this money and call it causing corruption we were able to work with them i think even uaw made have made like one of their payments for them and so we're mm -hmm. really trying to go a long way to build with those with those folks and you know this is the idea is like I mean, I worked on the Nissan campaign in Canton, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I remember how that was as far as like, it took forever. I wasn't on it the whole time, but it's just like, it was still too late. 
right? It took so long and it was still too late. And so part of our thinking was in 2021, when we started getting to know these folks and like, you know, they came in real, like realizing what we were about. They were like, we need to organize ourselves. And they decided they wanted a community benefits agreement. And so what Mm. we've been doing is we've been holding town halls, you know, doing surveys, phone banks, canvassing on doors to try to you know, build a coalition in that community that can Mm -hmm. identify what the impact is. And their stuff is like housing has uh, skyrocketed times three since Ford announced. I mean, it's just like very predatory right now. Mm. Um, You know, I I mentioned the $3,500 an acre. So people, you know, the state coming in with eminent domain and really lowballing these black farmers. Um, And then, like I said, people are concerned about um, not only the environment and the health of the environment, but also these 6,000 jobs, right? Like, I asked Ford, I asked the folks at Ford um, directly to their face, like, you know, what's the pipeline to get these folks hired? I saw that they 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 opened like a STEM school, K through 12. I think it's I think it's great. And I also think that by the time anybody goes through that school, you know, we already know that how you hire in a facility is like really what the makeup of the facility is going to be because of nepotism, because people know about the jobs from people that they know, et cetera. And so it's like it's not good enough to say that we're going to wait 12 years. For somebody to be able to start getting a job and, you know, and they've had this happen in that area before they had a private prison and, you know, one of the, and it's Mm. closed now. One of the things I ask is like, oh, was that devastating to the economy? And they said, no, because nobody here had those jobs. Those are all people that were coming from other parts of the state or even out of state. Right. Um, And so we're really concerned with the workforce pipeline. And I think this is something all labor can get behind is like if labor if labor can come together and set up like what are the workforce standards that we want to you know set with ford right um what kind of pipelines do we want to you know create um as far as training so that we can ensure that people that are there and have been there can like benefit from these jobs right because and you know ford told me we don't think we're going to be able to you know staff the plant you know from the local area we're definitely going to have to bring in workers from out of the state and so it's just like again that's like gentrification or it's going to really change the makeup of what you know their legacy their culture and what they have known for 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 generations there right right uh well Definitely want you to keep us up to date on that and uh, looking forward to seeing y'all uh, uh, be able to get a, a good community benefits agreement yeah. and hammer out some of this stuff Absolutely. with the pipeline because it, it's, you know, it's really important uh, that, you know, the, the community where this is happening is able to benefit from it. And, it, and it's just amazing, you know, I, I, I've said this multiple times, but, and, and you know, if, if people, you know, if you've been listening long enough, you can, you know who I'm talking about and you can go back and you can find the interview. But uh, we had a city councilor, a candidate at the time on the, sh- on the program. And, and he was talking about, you know, um, I, I want to do these quality of life improvements in my district and, and all this stuff. And, and so I asked him about, you know, basically the gentrification question, right? You, you know, you've seen that in, in Nashville and other places across the country to a huge extent. And we've seen it a little bit here in Huntsville. People in 35801 three, have been uh, priced out of their uh, of places where they live, where they've lived for, you know, I mean, generations. Right. Um, and, and people from... <clears throat> out of the city, out of the state are coming in and buying, you know, California, you know, California money coming in and, and buying Alabama houses. Right. And so there's a lot of this that is that's actually not benefiting people in Huntsville. And so, you know, how are you going to make sure that these quality of life things benefit the people that have always lived there? And he was like, 
Oh, I've never thought about that. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question, Jake. Yeah. Uh, I, I, well, and I think what you were talking about, Bianca, in terms of the workforce development, uh, I know that was something that indre- addressed in the New Flyer Community Benefits mm. Agreement here in Anniston, Alabama, uh, in terms of pre-apprenticeship programs, in terms of targeting underserved communities, minority communities, those who haven't always gotten a fair shake at getting these jobs. And I think that is, like you said, that's something all of labor can get behind. Um, And really, I think labor has to be involved, you know, at the high school level even. Mm -hmm. And and we have to be in those conversations about how do we prepare folks and, you know, what do we need and how can we get these young folks to become union workers, right, when they leave. So, yeah, there's so much we could talk about with this. Honestly, I'm just really, really proud of what y'all are doing and proud to see this kind of coalition building here in the South because I think it's transformative and it really can make a difference here. Uh, and that's the path forward. Uh, because like you said, these ecosystems that we have are small, we're underfunded, we're outgunned, outmanned. Um, the billionaire class, the, the elites who have long dominated these states uh, and these state legislatures, um, all we have is people power to fight back, right? And, and so it's really impressive to see that kind of growth, uh, to see a win like a CBA in Nashville, uh, hopefully uh, another CBA very soon out at Blue Oval. So that's just, I love it. Love to see it. Yeah, I've got I've got one more Tennessee-specific question, and then I, I want to hear about your podcast. Uh, Tennessee, as I understand it, had the highest union growth in the country. Is that right, Adam, or is it just the South? I knew it was the South. I'm not sure if it was the whole country. Well, um, a lot. You tell us. Yeah, you you tell us. That's and to, news to me. Okay, oh, okay, so highest union growth in the South. Um, to what extent was that Bianca? Was that like 20% Bianca or like <laughs> Bianca 50%? And Vonda. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that was that was that was Miss Vonda. Okay. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's really we we have enjoyed getting to know uh, the Nashville CLC and hear about the in Memphis CLC and just see the real progress that's happening to see forward momentum and energy, right? Because it has been pretty dead in the South for a long time when it comes to like labor politics. Uh, we have been encircled uh, for so long and just been on the defensive. Uh, but the more we get out of these silos, like you said, and, and build relationships with folks, build that people power network, the more we can accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard. And I just want to say that Mm. to people like it's not easy. It's messy. There's agitation involved. You know, egos get involved sometimes. You know, we Mm. have to be patient with people that we don't, you know, like maybe agree with all the time. And also Mm -hmm. all of our partners don't agree on all the issues. So sometimes we have to have like real conversations. I mean, I think public education comes to mind as something that we have really grappled with as a coalition. We have, you know, a lot of the teachers association or teachers unions rather, you know, in our fold and we're working with them. And we have this public this vision for public education, um, public school strong, that kind of thing. But also, you know, some of our the community organizations are like, well, you know, what about what about what about? So it's Mm. like it's 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 never going to be like a coalition of the 100 percent aligned. But I think that as long as we're able to have honest conversations with one another, push one another um, little by little, um, then, you know, you could get there. You could definitely get there. Right. So you you have a podcast that that, that you do. Uh, talk to us about it. Uh, uh, what's it called, and what do uh, uh, what are the things that y'all talk about? 
Yeah. So actually, this is not I mean, it's my podcast, but it's not my podcast. Right. This podcast is Black Work Talk. It's been around for a couple of years. Um, Dr. Stephen Pitts is uh, out of the UC uh, Labor Center is the one who, you know, this is his baby. And so he was the host for two um, years. Um, He decided to retire last year. And so Convergence had reached out to me to say I had been a guest on the show say that um, they thought that I could be a good host. Um, And so I was like, oh, wow, that's a new idea. It's really all new territory for me. But I trusted them and I worked with the producers and we were able to get Jamala Rogers, who's amazing out of St. Louis or organization for Black Struggle um, to come on and be a co-host with me. And, you know, my vision, I think that what Stephen Pitts did really well was like talk to kind of like grass tops and like, you know, directors and thought leaders about, you know, black work and, you know, and about their own stories. And I thought I found that really compelling. It was one of my favorite podcasts. But one of the things that's really important to me when I came on um, just basically because I come out of the rank and file was like, if it's called black work talk, can we just talk to like plain old black workers? You know, like, can we just hear from them? And so, you know, I really put an emphasis, you know, with production, like I really wanted to do like rank and file workers, right. Um, cover active struggles. And not that I, you know, don't think it's important to talk to the presidents and the executive directors, but Mm. so many other people are doing that. And we have so little, uh, exposure to just like everyday black folk. So that's what we tried to do this season. Season. Um, we had really great episodes with Writers Guild. The Hollywood uh, writers were on after their strike. We had Kaiser workers on after their strike. The Teamsters right before they thought they were going to go on strike. And it was just really amazing to hear all their stories um, about, you know, how the union has, you know, helped them, you know, and, mm-hmm. and helped them evolve and grow and, you know, fought for them and how they fought for the union and why it's important, you know, for us to all be in this struggle. I found it really relatable you know, like I said, coming from the rank and file. And so I'm hoping to do uh, more of that type of content. Bianca Cunningham, Black Work Talk, uh, bargaining for uh, the common good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, y'all. Appreciate it. Um, so, you know, speaking of Southern politics, Adam, we are in the beginning of Alabama's legislative session. You are the Northeast Alabama organizer for Alabama Arise, and that's a big part of what uh, Alabama Arise does is take a look at the um, take a look at the legislative session, advocate for policies that help uh, foreign working people in Alabama, and advocate against policies that hurt foreign working people in Alabama. So, what give give us a, a legislative snapshot? What's going on right now? Uh, what's been happening? And and what what's uh, what are we looking at coming down the pike? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me give my disclaimer. Uh, I appreciate your introduction, but I will put the disclaimer that I'm not speaking in my work capacity. This is just me. OK, this okay. is just Adam talking. Um, and so, yeah, it's always scary, frankly, when the legislators go into session in Montgomery. Uh, We always kind of hold our breath when they gather down there because you never know what kind of shenanigans they're going to get up to, honestly. Um, We have a GOP supermajority, right, which means the Republican Party holds enough seats that they could theoretically pass anything they want with just their votes. Um, Now, that's easier said than done. Um, So the legislature did begin on Tuesday. Uh, The governor gave her state of the state address. She mentioned a few of her priorities which we've already seen pop up in the legislature. 
Uh, so, Jacob, you want good news, bad news, something in between? What you want to start with? Uh, let's start with the bad news. Okay, bad news. Well, there's a lot of that, so hopefully we have time for the good news. Uh, so the bad news, uh, let's see. Last year, you may remember myself and quite a few other people fighting this terrible absentee voting rights bill. Uh, well, it's back this year as Senate Bill 1, and I strongly encourage folks to talk to their state senator between now and Tuesday. Uh, because it could be on the floor of the full Senate by Tuesday. Uh, it passed out of committee this week, despite overwhelming public opposition. Uh, the hearing room was packed. The speakers were overwhelmingly against it, of course. Uh, the League of Women Voters, Alabama Rise, the Alabama Voting Rights Coalition, all sorts of groups and organizations have really been sounding the alarm about this bill because it would criminalize folks for helping someone vote absentee. Uh, and it's, you know, so almost anything you can imagine in terms of helping someone participate in the election via an absentee ballot, any sort of assistance that you might provide to someone outside your family, uh, could be criminalized. And of course, like, you know, as union activists, getting our union membership to go vote and participate in the elections is, is something that we do as part of our volunteer duties, Right. Uh, and so there are a lot of folks who are, you know, whether they're a political coordinator for their local union, such as me, or if they work in advocacy groups or nonprofit groups or get out the vote groups, voter registration organizations, you know, the League of Women Voters, some of the work that they actually do could be criminalized under this statute. Um, but of course, there's a big concern from the disabilities community. Uh, and that's who, you know, elderly folks and the disabled were particularly concerned about their ability to vote absentee uh, because sometimes they need someone to help them with that. Right. Uh, whether it's getting a ride to go pick it up or, you know, assistance in getting it, whatever the situation may be. It's a really draconian bill that is um, it's a hammer in search of a nail that doesn't exist because the whole thing is supposed to address what they call ballot harvesting. Uh, there's no proof of ballot harvesting happening in Alabama. They want you to believe that there are like shadowy left-wing organizations harvesting absentee ballots from, I guess, you know, duped Alabamians participating in this, and that this is somehow, um, you know, a major electoral safety concern. Now, that doesn't seem to track with common sense that we don't even have competitive elections in Alabama. But uh, nor does it con compute with the facts, right? There's no proof of this kind of activity. So that's a really bad bill. Senate Bill 1 really encouraged folks to, to reach out to their senators about that. Um, there's some other bad news. The governor made it a priority this year to push school choice legislation or so-called school choice. Um, and so there's a couple of different bills out there on school choice. Some, uh, the governor and the Speaker of the House, Ledbetter, and uh, Senator Arthur Orr up here in Decatur, who is chair of the Education um, Finance Committee, they are pushing the Choose Act, and this would create educational savings accounts. Um, they're talking about taking $100 million out of the education, the public education trust fund budget uh, to fund this. It would phase in in terms of who's eligible, but, um, you know, it's a bad bill. It's, it's more school privatization, more school vouchers. Uh, there's one that's even worse uh, that was called the Price Act last year. I forget what it's called this year. Same guy, Ernie Yarbrough, is pushing it. 
Uh, it's even more deregulated and would funnel even more public tax dollars into private pockets. Um, so school choice is going to be one of the biggest fights happening in the legislature. Um, there is child labor loosening, uh, a child labor law uh, deregulation uh, that is up for discussion, uh, which we can talk about a little bit later. But long story short, the certification of work requirement form, the form that 14 and 15 year olds have to get to be eligible to work, they want to get rid of that form uh, so to make it easier for 14 and 15 year olds to work. Uh, so, you know, there's quite a few bad pieces of legislation already being floated out there. Uh, then there's some stuff kind of in between. Or... I just want to note really quick, just just for the record for folks that are listening, um, that bill that was filed to uh, make it easier for 14 and 15 year olds to work, that came either the day after or the day before it was announced that uh, the Department of Labor uh, was fining an Alabama roofing contractor $100,000 for um, you know, you know, I mean, for killing a 15-year-old boy who right. uh, was on his first day on the job um, without the proper training, being on a roof, without the proper training, without the proper fall protection, um, et cetera, et cetera. 15 years old on a roof, died first day on the job. Susan Dubois, Debose, and the Republican Party uh, want to make it easier for children to be in that situation. Yeah. It's really shameful that we are, you know, yet again, as the labor movement, called to fight against child labor in this country. Um, and I'd like to see the education community speak up on this issue as well, because um, there are already too many students in high school who are working way too much. And it's impacting their academics, their behavior. Um, and the idea that you want more 14 and 15 year olds in the workforce, it's just... Uh, you know, it's absolutely bonkers and it shouldn't be happening. Uh, so those were some of the bad bills that I know have already, you know, floated out there. Uh, you, you know, buckle up. Yeah, we expect it to be a, a lot of red meat in the first half of this session uh, leading into the March Super Tuesday primary, the, uh, you know, second congressional district primary. Um, so there's going to be a lot of red meat bills. There's a lot of divisive stuff being talked about in Montgomery right now. That could also slow things down, uh, potentially, because some of these issues are divisive, even within the Republican supermajority, um, including school vouchers. Right. And an another potentially piece, uh, divisive piece of legislation is gambling. Mm. Gambling is one of those perennial topics we talk about every year. Right. And nothing ever seems to get done on it. Uh, Medicaid expansion is another one of those topics. And the two seem to be kind of linked this year a little bit. Um, so on the gambling front, listeners outside of Alabama may not realize we are one of the few states that does not have a lottery. Uh, every state around us has a lottery. Uh, many states around us have casinos. Uh, we do not. Uh, we do not have legal sports betting. Uh, now, the Porch Creek Indians do uh, hold basically a casino monopoly within the state. And so there's a lot of different competing interests. There are some dog tracks and some other... Um, semi-legal, potentially illegal uh, gambling establishments in various counties that have local rules that gets really complicated. Uh, there are a lot of uh, illegal gambling establishments throughout the state, apparently. Um, and so there's some idea pushed by some in the Republican Party to finally address this issue, to put it before the voters in a constitutional amendment vote, uh, which it would have to be a constitutional amendment. 
So the idea would be to have a comprehensive gaming bill that would include the lottery, casinos, and sports betting. Uh, the devil will be in the details as to whether there's any agreements on this, uh, whether, you know, the Porch Creek Indians uh, will be okay with it, whether or not uh, the Democratic minority will be okay with it. Because there will not be enough Republican votes more than likely to pass this, mm. right? They will almost certainly need Democratic minority votes. Uh, and they seem to be sticking to their guns that there needs to be some language protecting or some language to to facilitate medicaid expansion right if they're going to pass this kind of bill we need to ensure that you know revenue raised goes toward or at least part of it goes towards expanding medicaid um and so that's going to be a really interesting uh fight to watch um me personally you know i think it's pretty ridiculous that in 2024 we haven't addressed this gambling stuff um, you know, I'm pretty libertarian when it comes to those sort of things. And I, I feel like, you know, if folks want to gamble, we might as well have it legal and taxed and regulated, uh, so that, you know, there is some benefit for the community out of that. Uh, we get no benefit from illegal gambling that currently exists. Uh, gambling is not a solution. Uh, and a lot of times, um, there have been politicians to make a lot of promises about, you know, what a lottery could do or what casinos could do for the state. Um, and there's a lot of drawbacks to them, right? Uh, people say a lottery is a tax on people bad at math. Um, it disproportionately affects uh, poor and working class people, right? So, you know, these are not like magic bullets by any means, but it could generate significant revenue in the state of Alabama, which generates some of the, if not the lowest amount of revenue per capita in the state, I mean, in the country. Mm. So, you know, our government is very underfunded. Uh, our tax system is very regressive and inadequate. Um, so anything that would add additional revenue to the state could be a potentially good thing. Medicaid expansion appears closer than ever before, possibly, um, which, you know, there is a Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, promoted plan that is a public-private partnership that's being floated around Montgomery. Um, you know, the plan itself, I haven't seen it. Right. So I can't speak to how good it is, how bad it is, whether or not it, you know, is equivalent to Medicaid expansion, whether it would cover the same amount of people. Um, you know, the little bits I've seen just in the media is that theoretically it would cover the same amount of people as Medicaid expansion. It's just that some of those would be on Medicaid. Some of those would be on a subsidized Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. Mm. Um, so. <clears throat> Again, the devil's in the details on that. At the end of the day, there are hundreds of thousands of Alabamians who do not have health care but could if we expanded Medicaid. Uh, and there's a ton of economic impact that we've left off the table uh, you know, by, by not expanding Medicaid. Just thousands of jobs, uh, security for our rural hospitals, so many of which have closed in recent years. So Medicaid expansion is a no-brainer. It should have happened a long time ago. It needs to happen. Uh, we will see if this is the year. It does seem more promising than ever. Um, again, you know, folks who care about this issue should absolutely be talking to their representatives and their senators about this, uh, as well as Governor Ivey. Uh, and then I'll finish with a more hopeful note, which is the state of Alabama. Well, this isn't hopeful. This is just the context, which in Alabama usually sucks. Right. So the context is that Alabama provides zero dollars in public transportation funding. That's right, zero. 
uh, this no state dollars for public transportation in the state of Alabama, mm. which is bad on so many levels, including the fact that you're leaving behind so much in federal matching dollars, in some cases, four to one matches, right? So a million dollar investment in the public transportation trust fund could generate as much as four additional million dollars, right, from the federal government. Wild, wild that this isn't being done. But the good news is uh, the governor has indicated more openness to doing this, um, probably not as much as advocates want in terms of a budget allocation, but certainly didn't rule it out. Uh, so if you are passionate about public transportation, this could be your year to see some progress. Um, again, talk to your state rep, ask that that be in the budget, that there be an allocation to the public transportation trust fund. Uh, because there's so much untapped potential there. And I think what has changed the conversation around that is this labor force, workforce participation rate conversation. There's been so much obsession among elected officials in Alabama's low labor participation rate. Um, and thankfully, you know, advocates like Arise and others have really uh, hammered home the message that, you know, people have to be able to get to work to go to work. People have to be healthy enough to actually work, right? So public transportation, Medicaid expansion, child care support, these are issues that are vital to getting people to participate in the workforce. Um, and there seems to be, you know, an increasing understanding even among, uh, you know, some of these elected officials that we're not big fans of. Some of them are starting to kind of come around to the idea that, you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe if someone could, you know, get a bus to a job site, they could keep their job. Maybe if they could get medication that they need, they could stay in the workforce. Um, so that's my legislative update. Uh, happy to take any questions you have, sir. But uh, that's what I got. Some good news, some bad news, some stuff to keep an eye on for sure. Yep. We, um, the, uh, I, I saw an interview recently talking about, you know, the labor force participation rate and how, in European countries, the answer was, how do we make it easier to get to work, uh, for people to get to work? And so they have a labor force participation rate in the prime working age of something like 85%. And in the United States, it's something like 78, 79, 80%. So they have- And much lower here in yeah, Alabama. And, and lower here in Alabama. And so, you know, they have in Europe much more prime working age people actually working and you know the way that they did that was they made it easy to work easier to work they had you know they've got universal health insurance so that they can uh universal health care so that you know people can go from job to job without uh you know feeling like any sort of way about it they have uh higher wages to make it make more sense to go and get a job they have public transportation um they have child care and all of this stuff, it just makes it easier for people to work. Whereas in the United States and in Alabama in particular, uh, our response has been to try to punish people that don't work. And that doesn't really address the barriers to work for a lot of people. And so uh, obviously moving in the direction of addressing barriers to work is uh, is definitely a step in the right direction. So we'll be uh, watching that with bated breath and uh, yeah. hoping yeah. that, uh, yeah. Hoping that some of that some of that work gets done. Absolutely. I mean, the the last thing I'll leave you with is, as always, is you need to talk to your legislators. You need to be in contact with them constantly because they are supposed to work for us. Yeah, they are supposed to. And, you know, so it really takes pressure to get them to do the right thing. 
And I know it can seem really disenchanting in Alabama sometimes. It is such an uphill battle. Um, but let me say this. Every year, folks are able to defeat bad bills. Mm. Every year, folks are able to push positive legislation. That's despite a GOP supermajority. That's despite um, you know the fact that many of the Democrats that are in office are also aligned with the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Council of Alabama, that kind of thing, right? Working class people in Alabama have very little political representation, if we're being honest. But despite that, when we fight, when we organize, when we build coalitions, we are able to make some progress and at least stop uh, some really bad things from happening. So that's important. You know, keep your head up, stay engaged, stay in the fight. Let's try to beat these bad bills and let's try to make some progress where we can. All right, folks, we're going to go to our second break. We're going to be right back to wrap it up with Boss Watch. Stay tuned. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 74 
Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Come on, you poor workers. Good news to you. only union talk radio show this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison co-host is adam keller appreciate everybody tuning in we've got mel tom and joe in the facebook chat thank you as always for listening strom treo uh like i said earlier vonda limey redneck dl cindero dylan jada the anti-corporatist in the youtube chat appreciate everybody tuning in like the stream if you haven't like us if you're listening to us as a podcast and uh subscribe if you haven't do all of that stuff obviously tvlr.fm slash donate to make a one-time or recurring donation um let's get to boss watch folks every single week bosses are breaking the law and we gotta we gotta let you know about it first off like i mentioned earlier this child this boy who was killed by the negligence of his employer in Alabama. This is from AL.com. The U.S. Department of Labor has fined a company $117,000 in connection with the 2019 death of a 15-year-old who plunged 50 feet from a work site on his first day on the job. According to the DOL, Apex Roofing and Restoration paid the penalties after investigators determined that Apex Roofing and Restoration of Pelham violated child labor laws in employing the teen. The incident happened on July 1st, 2019, as the teen was working on the roof of a Coleman Casting Corporation building. According to the investigators, the worker fell, suffering fractures of the wrist, skull, and ribs, among other severe injuries, and the teen was pronounced dead on the... uh, at the scene of the incident. According to the DOL, the teen was employed in violation of a law that prohibits workers under the age of 18 from engaging engaging in dangerous jobs, including roofing or construction operations. Uh, Apex Roofing, through a spokesperson, said it was, quote, truly heartbroken by the death. The tragic uh, incident occurred when a subcontractor's worker brought his sibling to a work site without Apex's knowledge or permission. The spokesperson said Apex has a longstanding policy uh, prohibiting any form of child labor. In addition, since the incident, Apex has implemented a number of safety measures to further strengthen job site security and safety. Our hearts are with this family and any family who suffers a loss. 
Federal investigators have issued several fines in recent years for child labor violations in Alabama, particularly in the auto industry, which Kay Ivey and the Council of Bosses want to make you believe is fantastic and great and everything is good in the auto industry. Both SL Alabama and JKUSA, an Opelika temporary employment agency, paid fines in 2023 from federal court and the Alabama Department of Labor after investigators found workers as young as 13 employed in one factory. Last year, the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division found child labor violations in more than 950 investigations, resulting in more than $8 million in fines. Another Alabama killer. During the peak of summer in 2023, a 33-year-old concrete finisher collapsed at a Huntsville construction site after showing clear signs of heat illness, a tragedy that federal safety investigators found could have prevented uh, had the employer (coughs) followed established safety practices for heat hazards. An investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration into the July 28, 2023 fatality found workers of SJNL General Contractor LLC were handing were hand forming concrete curbs when, as the heat index neared 107 and the humidity climbed to 85 percent, the worker was seen by coworkers stumbling, talking incoherently, and eventually <coughs> vomiting before becoming unresponsive. Though employees provided first aid and paramedics transported the worker to the hospital, the worker died only two hours after being admitted. OSHA investigators determined that SJNL General Contractor LLC exposed this worker and 18 other employees to hazards of extreme heat while working outside in direct sun during their 10-hour shifts. OSHA determined that SJNL General Contractor LLC exposed workers to hazards associated with high heat while working in direct sunlight, and so the employer faces a whopping $16,000 in proposed penalties. Increasing summer temperatures continue to impact workers. Fatalities due to exposure to extreme temperatures increased by almost 20% in 2022, rising to 51 from 43 deaths in 2021. Fatalities specifically due to environmental heat were 43 in 2022, up from 36 in 2021. In Florida, a U.S. Department of Labor safety investigation, uh, U.S. Department of Labor safety investigators have found that a Melbourne rental crane service provider could have prevented the electrocution of a 34-year-old crane operator at a Palm Bay work site in August 2023 by ensuring required safety measures were in place and followed. Investigators with the department's Occupational Safety and Health Administration instead found that on August 23, 2023, Captain Hook's Crane Service Incorporated sent an uncertified crane operator to a residential construction project alone to lift and place metal frame roof trusses at a residential construction project. After positioning the crane on an unpaved driveway and extending the boom to complete the first lift, The operator was electrocuted when the steel wire rope and chain rigging suspended from the crane boom contacted two 13,000-volt power lines next to the residential property. OSHA cited Captain Hook's crane service for three serious violations for using an uncertified crane operator and operating a hydraulic crane within 20 feet of overhead power lines. The employer also failed to ensure the crane was positioned on a stable foundation by utilizing adequate cribbing materials meant to support the outriggers of the crane at a greater height. 
The agency also cited the employer for two other than serious violations for not labeling and marking rigging equipment and failing to ensure warning labels on the hydraulic crane were eligible. The agency proposed a whopping $26,000 in penalties. Several dishonorable mentions this week. The U.S. Department of Labor has recovered $184,000 in back wages and liquidated damages for 56 seasonal guest workers and U.S. workers of Sales Restaurant in Tampa, Florida, after finding multiple violations of federal non-immigrant work program regulations in the federal minimum wage and overtime regulations. The U.S. Department of Labor has recovered $200,000 for a former Cobb and Douglas public health worker in Atlanta, Georgia, after the county agency violated the workers' rights to protected leave under the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act. The U.S. Department of Labor has recovered over $500,000 in back wages and liquidated damages for 139 employees of Ian Construction, a federal construction contractor, in Guam who shortchanged workers in violation of federal labor laws again. The DOL found that they violated the law in 2012, 2016, and 2021. U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division investigators found that Boatwright Farms paid 106 U.S. workers in Steele, Alabama, less than similar H-2A immigrant workers in violation of the law, stating that immigrant workers cannot be given preferential treatment over U.S. workers. The division recovered $8,862 in back wages for the 106 U.S. workers and assessed $9,970 in civil money penalties to the employer. Walmart agreed to pay $30,000 and provide other relief to settle charges of sexual harassment in an EOC lawsuit, specifically that a Defuniac Springs, Florida worker was harassed verbally and physically, reported the harassment, and Walmart failed to take, hack- to take action. Affordable Home Furnishings in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has agreed to pay a former employee $105,000 to settle a race discrimination lawsuit alleging that a white manager repeatedly used the N-word and then fired a black worker who reported the slurs. Lots of stuff all the time. All the time employers are getting away with this. And, you know, with the with the child labor stuff, the... Um, you know, the thing that Republicans think is wrong with that is that it's illegal. It's absolutely, uh, absolutely wild. Uh, but we've got a uh, we've got some more uh, some more news. And this news is positive out of Dartmouth. Like I said, we mentioned this in last week in Southern Labor, even though it is not in the South. It is definitely going to have implications for the South, especially with the prevalence of college athletics in the southern United States. Um, But Dartmouth basketball players now have a union election scheduled for March the 5th. Uh, This comes after... uh, uh, the National Labor Relations Board regional director issued a decision and direction of election ordering the union election um, uh, because Dartmouth has the right to... And they they issued this, you know, the the controversy has always been are college athletes players? Or are they workers? Are college athletes workers? And then, therefore, are they subject to the protections of the National Labor Relations Act? Right. And the other wrinkle to it is whether it's a public or private university. Right. And uh, Dartmouth is a private university. Correct. So 
The regional director concluded, quote, because Dartmouth has the right to control the work performed by the Dartmouth men's basketball team and the players perform that work in exchange for compensation, I find that the petitioned for basketball players are employees within the meaning of the National Labor Relations Act. So this election is ordered since the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel issued her memo in September 2021 with her guidance on employee status of players at academic institutions. So uh, we'll see what happens. This Something similar happened with Northwestern University in 2015 where an election was scheduled and held among among college athletes, but the ballots were never actually counted. Because in 2015, there was a rule stating that when there is a pending uh, you know, request for review with the board, uh, that ballots can't be counted. Well, uh, that rule has been rescinded. So regardless of whether there is a request for review in this election, these ballots will be counted. So we're going to see what happened. Um, the National Labor Relations Board uh, press secretary sent uh, some other related cases in the college athlete, uh, you know, the college athlete labor relations world. Um, ta- uh, she mentioned that the uh, Region 31 of the NLRB issued an unfair labor practice complaint against the University of Southern California, the Pac-12 conference, and the NCAA as joint employers, alleging that uh, the Joint employers have maintained unlawful handbook rules and unlawfully misclassified scholarship and non-scholarship women's and men's basketball and men's football players as student athletes. And so this is interesting. This is an interesting case because you mentioned, Adam, that, you know, one of the one of the kinks is, is it a public or a private uh, university? Well, the NLRB in California is alleging that the University of California, which is a public institution, University of Southern California, now, see, and is USC public or private? I think it. I think it's public. Isn't USC public? I think it may be a private school. I'm about to find out. University okay. of Southern California is a private institution. Uh, okay, so that's interesting. But nevertheless, they're saying that the University of Southern California is a joint employer with Pac-12 and the NCAA. Right. Pac-12 and the NCAA are are uncontroversially private sector employers. And so if you have a joint employer rule coming down, uh, affirming that from the federal courts, then you could see college athletes in the South at public institutions making similar arguments that, hey, we are, you know, uh, we have joint employers, both the University of Alabama and the NCAA. And so therefore, because one of our employers is a private institutions, we have the protections of the National Labor Relations Act, potentially. Right, right. And you could also see where, you know, potentially it spreads to some of the private schools first. Maybe that's where it does take off. Um, you know, like a Vanderbilt, for example, mm-hmm. is in the SEC, which is right. the money maker of NCAA. Um, so that that would be interesting. Right, right, right. right. And um, one of the original arguments that the NCAA had against this one of you know one of one of many, uh, but one of them was that if private uh, if, if workers were, if if the college athletes were able to unionize, then that would create an uneven playing field among college football institutions, and it would just be totally, um, it would not be workable. 
Well, with the recent name, image, and likeness uh, ruling from the NCAA allowing work uh, uh, college football players to profit from that, obviously the terrain has been totally changed. And it, it, it's just totally different all across the country at different universities uh, for different players at the same university. And so that argument is is totally blown out of the water now. And, and so they don't have that. Yeah. And, and let me just say on that issue, I mean, I think that really is important that the landscape has changed dramatically. You have the name image likeness that is generating a ton of money. It's so uneven in how it's being distributed. Uh, yeah. It seems to be very like, unregulated it's wild west is what some of these coaches are calling it uh you also have the transfer portal that has been loosened up and so you have kids transferring left and right from school to school even like starting quarterbacks of star programs are are leaving um and me personally i'm all for the you know the athletes to be empowered and to do what they think is best for their life because they're the one doing it right not me i'm just watching it on tv <laughs> so what gives me the right to say how they should live their life um but i honestly think collective bargaining could be a way to bring some standards some equity um and some guardrails right. to the whole you know the whole regime of college football and college basketball as well. Now, I'm also curious, how does this impact the other sports, the non-revenue producing sports, so to mm -hmm. speak? You know, because this face at track and field, they're not really generating a lot of revenue for the university. It's not the same as Alabama football, which is a multi-million dollar business. Um, and so I, I'm curious to know how that's going to go. Um, you know, my my heart is certainly with the players and my instinct is to say, organize collectively. Right. Um, and whatever that looks like, the final product, who knows? But I do think that by organizing collectively, they can ensure that the most of them get most of what they need. Um, right. That's what I really think. Uh, because right now you have a system where there are some players who are going to be benefiting quite a bit there's a lot who are going to be left out in the lurch for various reasons. Um, and also, I think, you know, we have to be sensitive to the fact that these are young folks who mm -hmm. um, are, I, I think, potentially exploited by agents and other folks who are going to be circling these kids, right. realizing there's money out there to be made off of them. Um, so, again, I think unionization and collective bargaining could actually be a, an answer really to standardize and to normalize the situation that has been in such flux over recent years. I think the NFL, the NBA, they all, you know, clearly obvious examples, right? Mm -hmm. All of those are organized. All of those are unionized um, and, and they negotiate contracts and there are still, there's still plenty of room for individual talents to make right. more, right? LeBron James makes more money than a bench rider. Right. And that's fair. Right. He's right. LeBron James. And if you're not making it off the bench, it's reasonable to expect he wants more compensation. Uh, whatever your opinions about LeBron. Right. So, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, people say that, you know, you know unions are, are, are socialist and communist and, and that communism is, is you know, uh, everything's the same. Everything is the same. And like, actually, you know, the, the argument that socialists make is that uh, workers should be paid for the value that they produce. <laughs> right. And so obviously, right. LeBron James creates a lot more value than the bench rider. 
Yeah, so uh, interesting interesting dynamics are going to play out with this. Um, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, I know Means TV covered this this week and mentioned, you know, if Dartmouth gets a union, mm. is is that a unique recruiting tool, right? Are mm. there going to be players right. who are going to be like, hey, maybe that's a, maybe that's the place I want to go, uh, right. where I do have this collective voice and I have... Uh, the potential to get a contract and get something in writing. Um, mm-hmm. It could be interesting to see how that plays out. And, uh, you know, me personally, were I a talented athlete, I'd certainly be uh, paying attention. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so, folks, we're going to be wrapping up here soon, um, going into overtime. We've got some more good stuff, as always, in overtime. We're going to be talking to some, some Kentucky Amazon workers about their uh, union campaign, checking in on them. We talked to them early in December, um, mentioned them in last week in Southern Labor, so we're going to be checking in, seeing how they're doing. Uh, we're also going to be talking some more about school choice. Um, Adam's day job, uh, he unionized it. So Alabama Arise is unionized now with CWA. We're going to be talking about that uh, some. We mentioned it in last week in Southern Labor last week, but uh, we didn't actually you know, dive into it. So we're going to be talking about that. Um, if we have time, we're going to talk about school choice. Take your calls. I just realized that our phones have not been open, and so let's, we'll, we'll open them during the break uh, going into overtime. We'll take your calls. Uh, 844-899-TVLR is the phone number, so get that um, uh, get that number ready if you want to call in. Um, Adam, you have some plugs as we wrap up the show today. Yeah, uh, a couple plugs. As always, go to labornotes.org slash events. Check out what they have on offer. Uh, February 21st is dealing with difficult supervisors. Lord knows a lot of us uh, have had need for that workshop in our lives. Um, they're also doing the Secrets of a Successful Organizer series throughout February and March. So uh, recommend that. Uh, and don't forget to register by March 1st for the Labor Notes Conference. I need to go ahead and do that. Uh, it's April 19th through 21st in Chicago. Hope to see a good contingent from Alabama there. Uh, let's see what else we got. Uh, I was on America's Workforce this week. Uh, I believe that was Tuesday morning. Uh, if you want to check that out. Um, North Alabama Labor Council is holding its meeting Monday night. For any union members in the area, definitely come on by. And uh, if you're a college student, a college professor, or have any connection to a college campus, and you'd be interested in a pro-labor event on campus, check out Labor Spring 2024. It's an initiative out of Georgetown University. And of course, if you're in Alabama and you're interested, do hit us up. Absolutely. Um, So folks, that's going to be it for us during the main show. Like I said, find us on Overtime uh, YouTube and Facebook at The Valley Labor Report. We've got another hour, hour and a half left to go. Uh, So don't miss it. Uh, Find us online, Facebook, YouTube, The Valley Labor Report. Uh, If you like what you hear, tvlr.fm slash donate is a good way to support the show and make sure that we can stay on the air. tvlr.fm slash donate. Make a one-time or recurring monthly donation. We've got like 11 shirts left. Got like 11 shirts left, something like that. TVLR.fm slash merch or TVLR.fm slash store. Um, buy our uh, uh, buyer shirts. We got a few of those. All left. union labor, all oh, union yeah. made. Absolutely. All right, folks, that's going to be it. See you next week. Which side are you on?